0: Well, good evening, everyone. Sure is good to see you guys once again. Fond memories the last few years of being with the faith family here and being able to fellowship and minister. Hard has been blessed. I've been the recipient of such grace, you know, to be able to fellowship with you guys in such a wonderful way. Um, I just want to say that part of my reasoning for being here, uh, relishing the moment, is because of your two elders um, I really believe that Kelly and Brother Dexter are the real deal. And I am so grateful for their friendship. We've had just immense times of blessing and fellowship together. And uh, you guys, it's, uh, it's rare to have an elder board that uh, has that camaraderie of spirit and love for one another as well as for their people. And so I'm just so grateful to be around these men once again. I, I, I think I would almost characterize their character as Nathaniel, In whom there is no guile, Uh, I really believe. Even though they're not perfect men, as you well know, they're your pastors, yet at the same time, their character is exemplary, and I'm so grateful for them. Conflict resolution. The first thing I would say tonight is you've got to understand from the outset of this conference that Christianity is distinctly relational. As a matter of fact, we go so far as to measure our vertical relationship with the Lord on the basis of our commitment to one another. And so I just came back from Eastern and Western Europe after preaching a number of weeks there, and my assignment for the Heart Cry Conference was I preached six messages from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the teaching. And persist in them, for in so doing, you not only save yourself, but those who hear you. And so the very first message was the importance of maintaining a good conscience. Take heed to your conscience. You have no idea, four times in 1 Timothy, Paul stresses the importance of maintaining a good conscience to Timothy. As a matter of fact, in one of those contexts there, he says that what results in a falling away, a shipwreck of the faith is when men's consciences are compromised. And so you see out the epistles of the Apostle Paul where there's this overemphasis, it seemed like, on the importance of conscience. And he says, Herein do I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense between God and men. And so I ask you tonight, before we get started, can you honestly say in your heart that you have a conscience that's clear between you and others, family members, faith family members, people you work with, distant relatives? Is your conscience clear? This is one of the first stages to apostasy from the gospel is when we make little concessions in our conscience that lead to small compromises and ultimate large compromises. A root of bitterness is a great catalyst for apostasy. And so tonight we want to look at a very familiar text, as a matter of fact, multiple texts. And if you would, I want you to take your Bibles with me and turn first of all to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we want to consider tonight a theology of peacemaking. I know that's not the original title in the bulletin there, but we're going to look at this thing of Christ's emphasis on reconciliation and what his counsel is for resolving conflict. And during the course, if I could give you a heads up at the beginning here as to what we'll be looking at this evening, basically three things. Listen carefully. First of all, who Christ says is the responsible party in resolving conflict. Who it is that Christ puts squarely the responsibility upon for reconciliation to take place. Secondly, we will consider what is the appropriate course of action, biblically speaking, according to the counsel of Christ, in resolving issues or conflict. And then finally tonight, we want to think through this matter of the value of reconciliation or restoration in relationships. So if you would, look with me in our text in Matthew chapter number 15. And by the way, I think I've told you this before, I use a hodgepodge of translations Bear with me there. You'll notice I'll draw from the Old King James, the New King James, the NASB, and the ESV, okay? And normally I don't do that to confuse you, but I do it to give clarity. Because sometimes a certain translation seems to cast greater clarity upon the text than others. So tonight I begin reading here in the ESV, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray once again together. Father, we once again acknowledge that we need the Holy Spirit we pray, Father, that you'd be gracious to pour out the spirit tonight without measure upon your people. Lord, we are we're a great needy people in this hour. There's so much fragmentation in the church. Even within evangelicalism, some of the well known platform preachers, there is a profound dissension between them. And it trickles down into relationships. So many things have divided us. And so there's a call to repentance and there is a call to restoration. And then we'd ask tonight, Lord, that you would give clarity and conviction to what we'll look at, that your people would be helped and instructed and encouraged and blessed as a result of the empowerment of your word and the presence of the Lord of the church please help us tonight speak to our hearts. May Christ be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You might say that the text that we've just looked at is a systematic theology on conflict resolution. You notice certain things that stand out in these verses of scripture. First of all, It tells of each believer's duty to care for a sinning brother. Those who wrong us, who we are offended by, who perhaps either do it deliberately or inadvertently. It tells us who the responsibility falls upon when a sinning brother has hurt us or grieved us in some measure. Secondly, it addresses the responsibility of the church to exercise discipline. Church discipline, I have to agree with McShane who said it is an ordinance of the church. It's not just baptism and the Lord's table, but church discipline is an ordinance of the church. And we have neglected it horribly. Thirdly, you find that it underscores the necessity of the church to use her God-given authority in binding and loosing. And that's a whole different message in itself. But if there's one thing our Savior is accentuating here is the fact that Christ is the authority of the church and he has meted out his authority to certain men as overseers of the church of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, brethren, it underscores the importance of prayer and the Father's desire to answer that prayer when brothers agree. Can you imagine a church that's in perfect harmony? Can you imagine how that harmony would be a springboard for urgency and expectancy in prayer? Many churches who pride themselves in being a house of prayer are not houses of prayer at all. They're houses of entertainment. The focus is more on self than it is the Lord. Therefore, they render themselves themselves an operative to this urgency of prayer that comes as a result of being in harmony with one another. But also you find in the text, it also assures us of Christ's manifested presence when discipline is carried out. And this is what I long for these days. I don't like academic Christianity. I don't like cerebral Calvinism. I really do want the truth to make my heart dance. And I believe this Christ is not only a theological Christ, but He is an experiential Christ. I want to know His presence. As I told the men today, Erwin Lutzer says, we are teaching people to think deeply, but not to feel deeply. And so we've basically negated that aspect of experiential spirituality because we know nothing of this enveloping presence, this embracing of His presence in the church. So tonight we move from here, and let me just share three things with you. Number one, Understand, first of all, the responsible person in restoration. If you're at odds with someone, if someone has hurt your feelings and grieved your spirit, or maybe you've taken an offense for somebody else because of someone's obnoxious behavior, understand who the responsible party is in conflict resolution. It's you. Listen to the text, Matthew 18 and verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Christ is speaking, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now this is interesting, listen carefully. The process of reconciliation with a brother who has sinned against you begins with the offended brother. It does not begin with the brother who has sinned against you. Neither does it begin with church leadership. Oftentimes people will opt out. They want to go to the elders or someone in leadership and disclose their woes. Because it makes them feel better. I've gotten it off my chest and maybe somehow, some way, inadvertently, it might put pressure on the elders to do something about this broken relationship But you see, the responsibility begins with you if you've been hurt and offended. What is most surprising about resolving conflict is that the Scripture places a responsibility on the offended party to begin the reconciliation process. We might think, listen, that the person who offends us needs to come to us first. But that's not where the Savior puts the emphasis. You see, you will note two other passages in the Gospel of Matthew that underscores the reality of this responsibility. Listen to this: Matthew chapter five and verse twenty-three and twenty-four. Therefore, if thou bring thou a gift to the altar, and you remember that your brother has all against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The responsibility falls upon our shoulders. Now understand tonight that worship does not begin when we call people together for the purpose of exercising ourselves in the context of a worship service. According to this text, it begins when the Spirit begins to move upon our mind and show us a brother that has sinned against us, and then he leads us to go and take the initiative to resolve the matter. You'll notice, furthermore, in Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five, and one behold, you, Christ says, the mote that is in your brother's eye, this splinter. But consider not the beam, this plank that is in your own eye. Or how will you say to your brother, verse 4, let me pull out the mote out of your eye and behold, this plank is in your own eye. Jesus gives a very severe charge. Hypocrites. Hypocrites hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of your own eye and then you shall see clearly to cast out the mote that is in your brother's eye. Now please listen carefully. As we have seen in the previous verses here, every time we detect sin in another brother, we should examine ourselves first in preparation to confront him about the matter. Therefore, we We see once, brethren, again, that the process of resolving an issue begins with the brother who has been sinned against. Now, this is important. It may be somewhat redundant because it's so simplistic. You say, well, I know all that. But you've got to begin with a sure foundation. You can't shift the blame. You can't cower in hopes that maybe in God's providence, God will expose this person and motivate them to come to you. But if you've been offended, you've been wounded, you're to take the initiative. He said, well, that's not my constitution. He doesn't qualify the text. He doesn't give you a way out by saying, well, if it's your constitution, it relieves you of your responsibility. Has God spoken to you? is a resounding conviction that He reminds you tonight of someone that has offended you. And once again, the Spirit echoes by way of conviction to your own heart. You must take the initiative. You must do it. Secondly, there's another thing I want you to see here, and that is the course of action in restoration. And once again, I'm going to jump around between these three, three texts, but we go back to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Once again, the Lord said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now in the text, as you read on here, you find the offended party is to, first of all, go. Go. What does this mean? It denotes an urgency. We must not delay. Often the longer we wait, the greater tendency there will be to rationalize our responsibility. Such as, it's their fault. We put feelers out to solicit support. And all of a sudden you've got carnal people that will agree with you. And they'll lend their input, their advice, with hopes it will relieve you of your pressure. And yet all the time the flesh is working to draw any type of support it can, any type of props to relieve it of its responsibility of going. Furthermore, he says, the Lord Jesus, tell him his faults. Listen carefully. His sin must be clearly objective. Now, you can't speculate at this. They've done something. They've said something. They've said it more than once. It's a sure thing. It's objective. You're an eyewitness account. You felt the brunt of their sin. It is not the fruit of subjective speculation or conjecture. Upon witness of its effect on you, you must go and speak the truth to the offending party about his sin. You must do it. It calls for your initiative. But then Christ says this, very interesting, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the pinch and strain of it all. You see, if we solicit sympathy from another, we grieve the Spirit. Listen, we grieve the Spirit and cannot expect God's blessing on our attempt to reconcile. We must go and tell Him His fault between us and Him alone. So, in the context we read on, if that does not happen, if repentance is not given, If there's not a brokenness that ensues and a subsequent reconciliation, then he says we're to go and take two or three witnesses. Now, did you ever think about this? Why? Why in this process of reconciliation does the Lord Jesus say to next take two or three witnesses? I thought about it. Here's my conclusion. The purpose of multiple witnesses is to confirm the word of the offended brother. In other words, the person that's been hurt or offended, he, in a sense, is on trial. Is his beef legitimate? Is what he's saying about this person, has it really happened? Or is words justified? Secondly, it validates the allegation. It's true. What he said, and he said over and over, or done over and over again, it's validated. These people ask the hard questions. They listen. They perceive the spirit of the individual. And by their own testimony, they see it validated that what this man says about this party is true. He has been hurt, he has been offended, legitimately so, the allegation is accurate. But also it protects the sinning brother. It protects him from false accusations. This is the wisdom of God, brethren. This is not just something that is shared with the hopes that maybe this will happen. It will transpire. This is the wisdom of God. It's for the help of the church. It's for the testimony of the gospel. This is important. Listen now. The next and final process or step in the process is take it to the church. This is interesting. Listen. The sinning brother's ultimate relationship with the Christian community is determined by the church. The body of believers is lovingly involved in pursuing the restoration of the brother. We don't discipline, we don't confront to kick a guy in the teeth, to bring reproach upon him unnecessarily. We do it because we seek to lovingly restore him. So if he refuses to repent, he is subject to excommunication. Listen, the decision of the church deprives him of the loving embrace of the faith family i am just going to stop here and make this statement. I don't know if you've read Jerry Bridges' book, Koinonia. He brings out in the content of that book something that I've never seen before, the depths and the riches of this whole principle of fellowship. Just coming to church from Sunday to Sunday and shaking hands with people or maybe giving a passing embrace is not real, genuine fellowship. There's a dimension of fellowship that the church in modern times knows so very little about. Because you enter into such an intimate bond with each other, a caring spirit, that if that's taken away from a person, it has a profound traumatic effect on them. It's like you've cut off their arm. And for you to say you can't come back to the gathering of the saints, it has a profound impact on those people. But listen, if you're only used to just kind of gathering together at fellowship meals and talking about sports and you never enter into this spiritual communion with one another, this dimension of fellowship, it's not going to matter to the person if they're Asked to leave the church. No big deal. This person, the decision of the church deprives him of the loving embrace of the faith family. Listen, he is assessed as a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, he bears a reproach the way the Jewish people looked upon a tax collector with contempt and disdain. Al Barnes says this. I use some quotes at times. They're pregnant with truth. They complement what we're looking at. Listen to what Mr. Barnes says. We should disown him as a Christian brother. Treat him as we do other people not connected with the church. If he's saved, he doesn't flippantly cast that off. It does impact him. So furthermore, the act of excommunication will protect the church from a detrimental influence, namely this person that is unrepentant. Now, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So oftentimes in a message, what I do is I'll draw from something that has deeply ministered to my heart and I know it will help you. If I could recommend two books to you on conflict resolution outside the Word of God, there's no rival to the Word of God. But the two books would be Ken Sand's book entitled The Peacemaker. And the other book is by Alexander Schrock, If You Bite and Devour One Another. Outstanding. They hit it from two different angles. But Mr. Sand... And what he has to say about restoring relationships, reconciling with a brother, is priceless. It's what I would call a systematic theology of peacemaking. And it begins with what I would also call, what my assessment is, is Conflict Resolution 101. So imagine yourself in a class here tonight I'm going to give you some principles, sharing with you some things from Ken Sand, and then I'm going to make some additional comments along the way. Listen to this very quickly. You must understand that our purpose in conflict resolution is not to help us so much as to glorify God. It's to the glory of God. Mr. Sands says, biblical peacemaking is motivated and directed by a desire to please and honor God. This is important. Now listen, it is his interest, reputation, and commands that should take precedence over all other considerations. This focus not only shows our love and respect for God, but also protects us from the... listen. The impulsive, self centered decisions that make conflicts even worse. So, what do we gather from this? You cannot be governed when attempting to make reconciliation with someone by your feelings. Brothers and sisters, you must think biblically. You must. We are emotional beings. And even the best of us who know the truth of Scripture oftentimes default to how we feel about something. Rather than doing what's right, obeying God's Word. Listen, I must think biblically and refuse to allow my feelings to govern my actions. Sand picks up once again here and says, when I follow my feelings, I am likely to make impulsive decisions that often offend my opponent and make matters worse. We don't want that, do we? So he continues by saying, when I give God's interests and commands top priority, I invariably see things more clearly and respond to problems more wisely. Amen. Well spoken. Furthermore, he talks about this whole thought of removing the log in your eye. Removing the log in your eye. You go back to Matthew chapter 7 verse 3. Jesus says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Now, this is very significant. Let me encourage you to give rapt attention. Mr. Sand said Peacemaking requires facing up to your own attitudes, faults, and responsibilities before pointing out what others have done wrong. Overlooking the minor offenses of others and honestly admitting our own faults often will encourage. Similar responses from our opponents and open the way for candid dialogue, reconciliation, and constructive negotiation. Now, I want to give you a side note here that I hope will be a source of edification, brothers and sisters. Please don't miss this. There's a man who was not reformed. Quite frankly, I'll be honest with you. I'm glad that Calvinists don't have monopoly on the kingdom of God. His name was Roy Hessian. He wrote the Calvary Road back forty years ago. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, in a conference with Roy Hessian. I was immensely blessed, not only by his rich teaching on the Christ's life, but to see Christ so beautifully manifest in his life was. Something that I'll never forget. Then it says this, regarding this whole concept of the moat and the beam. This is significant. What did the Lord Jesus mean by the beam in our eye? Are you with me? Track with me now. I suggest that the beam in our eye is simply our unloving reaction to the other man's moat. Without doubt, there is a wrong in the other person. But our reaction to that wrong is wrong too. The mote in him has provoked in us resentment, coldness, or criticism, or bitterness, or evil speaking, or ill will, all of them variants of basic ill, and that is lovelessness. Now watch this. And that, says the Lord Jesus, is far more worse than the tiny wrong, sometimes quite unconscious, that provoked it. A moat means, in the Greek, a little splinter, whereas a beam means a rafter. And the Lord Jesus means by this comparison to tell us that our unloving reaction to the other's wrong is what a great rafter is to a little splinter. So it may be ten times a greater evil, your reaction to a brother that has offended you than what they've done even though what they've done is an act of disobedience. My comment. This is a call that at times involves discomfort for us. To go to people, to square off with people. You say, that's just not me. I'm, I'm not a confrontational person. But God gives you the responsibility once again, there's no qualification here. It's not for people that are aggressive in their personality that speak well. It's for all of us. And sometimes the weaker, the better. You sit there in front of them, you stutter, and you stammer, and you don't know what to say, and you're at loss for words. And yet God uses that weakness for his strength to make perfect that reconciliation might ensue. The self preparation in the text may require me to mortify something in my life. Secondly, it's not easy to address a brother that is in sin. Pride or self love would rather mind its own business than to confront. Is that you? Would you love the ministry if it just wasn't for people? The main thing that keeps us from helping our brother is our own pride and lovelessness. Do we really care for their soul? Another thought. Once again, we reiterate Go and tell your brother his fault alone, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Here's a thought. At times, peacemaking also requires constructive confrontation. Now, you look at this whole practice of taking the initiative to go and right wrongs. And some people, the reason they're intimidated by that is because they see it as something that's more archaic or legalistic or oppressive. I don't want to rock the boat, preacher. I'm afraid it might create a firestorm. Can I tell you most of the time it doesn't? That's the devil's ploy. Is to intimidate you from doing it, fulfilling your responsibility. It is an opportunity to show love, to put gospel driven love on display. But then finally, here's something else go and be reconciled. Matthew 5, verse 24. Mr. Sand says this, peacemaking involves a commitment in restoring damaged relationships and developing agreements that are just and satisfactory to everyone involved. So here's a thought. We never find future grace to reconcile by sitting casually by and just waiting. Can I sound piperish for a moment? What is future grace? It's when I choose to be obedient to what God requires of me, even when I don't feel like it. And as I go in obedience to God to reconcile with the party, suddenly God gives me a surge of desire. It's God. God helps. It is an act of obedience that brings healing, peace, and closure. So here's the third and final point. In regard to this process of conflict resolution, understand that the eternal value, the eternal value of restoration. And this is just almost mind-blowing. Matthew 18, once again, let me stir up your mind the way of remembrance by reading the text again. Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, assuredly, You can say this, he says this with confidence. You can be confident in this. I say to you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Watch it now. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is important. The agencies that are involved in this process of reconciliation reveal its infinite worth. You underestimate what God does in the process of making things right. And so let me underscore that. Christ is the head of the church, directs the members of his body to take the initiative in restoring the sinning brother. One member is told to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Then the corporate body of Christ's church is directed to aid in the restoration process as seen in the words of two or three witnesses or where two or three are gathered together. Furthermore, another agency is that Christ is directly involved. He's there. He shares principles and the process. And secondly, he manifests his presence in the excommunication in the words, I am there in the midst of them. I've seen this happen before when church discipline, the final step was made publicly. The atmosphere becomes electric the manifested glory of Christ, the fear of the Lord, the sense of God. You'll notice this. There are other important agencies that convey the worth of restoration and church discipline. They include, listen now, the authority of the church in binding and loosing. You have no idea what's going on in the invisible realm but it's for your good and for God's glory. Secondly, it's the power of prayer in agreement. Let me ask you a question. I don't know what church you're from, but are you seeing consistent answers to prayer? Things happening that you can't manipulate? Most churches don't have that track record. Could it be traced back to our failure in individuals taking the initiative to go and to confront a brother? Or the church neglecting the responsibility to corporately exercise church discipline? You see, brothers and sisters, when we think of how these significant agents are involved in the carrying out of the process of restoration, we must conclude that the practice is of great importance. While these agencies underscore the importance of the church discipline and restoration, the ultimate value is in the purpose of restoration and that that is that the head of the church might be glorified through the unity of the body. People, occasionally I run across people who say, "Well, I, I, I wish I could go to that church." They perceive that a church that's 100 miles or further away is the perfect church. I just wish I could be a part of that congregation. Friend, those churches are full of flawed, weak people like you. The novelty's going to wear off. Somebody's got to roll up their sleeves and in love, go to work. So, conclusion. Don't miss the point. Conflict resolution is vital to the health and growth of Christ's church. Are you with me now? Modern believers have failed to realize the seriousness of their responsibility to care for one another. Tragically, therefore, the ministry of confrontation and church discipline no longer exists in most churches today. Church discipline is either looked upon, once again, as an archaic tradition that passed away at the end of the apostolic age, or a legalistic practice that the modern church fears to exercise for fear of incurring a reproach from a watching community. But we must obey God. Nonetheless, Obedience to the directives of this text will build up Christ's church and promote the gospel in the eyes of a watching world. It's true. So here are some things, implications that I close with. First of all, you've got to understand that if you put this in motion, if you exercise yourself to restore relationships and not sit back and just talk to others about them, It will testify to the love and care that the members of Christ's church have for one another. Did you hear that? It will testify to the love and care that the members of Christ's church have for one another. This is the very reason why, listen, God puts a great priority on the mutual commitment that the members of Christ's body have for one another. Brothers and sisters, we are our brother's keeper. Whether we agree with one another or not on secondary issues, we must love. For the law of love exceeds any secondary issue in importance. On one church creed, side church, little country church I was in, love this. I believe fire. The Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals have used this as their motto. But it read, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Charity. So listen to this. Here's the second benefit. To follow Christ's instruction is the church's duty of protecting one another from reproaching the name of Christ. It ain't about you. It's not about me. It's the slain lamb's reputation that is at stake. This is the very reason why the writer of Hebrews tells the church to not forsake the assembling of themselves together. And it's not, he's not just talking about once a week, friend. He's talking about this daily dialogue and interaction of God's people. You see, the name of Christ is safeguarded against reproach when his people faithfully expose themselves to the grace gatherings throughout the week. He says, remember Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, consider one another. Why? So that you might provoke one another. Our lives should be a constant loving provocation to accelerate sanctification in Christ's likeness in the lives of his people. And we do it by exhorting one another. But thirdly, don't miss this. Our obedience to Christ guidelines here in Matthew 18, listen, displays before the world a unity for the furtherance of the gospel. I I mean... What good does it do if you did have a perfect church with all these perfect members? What kind of testimony would that be before the world? Well, when people in your community, family members know that are not Christians know, how in the world can that dude go to church with that dude when their constitution and personalities are so contrary to one another? And the other day I saw them talking to one another with smiles on their faces and I could even sense at a distance that a warmth was being exuded from one another toward each other. What kind of testimony does that make? Profound. Sounds like the salt of the earth. The light of the world. In other words, what I'm trying to say Unity makes the gospel believable. When lost people witness harmony and peace in any Christian relationship, it promotes the gospel. You well remember John 17, verse 21 in the Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, John 17, that they all may be one Father as thou art art in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of Conrad Murrell? Uh, I knew Conrad very well, and my assessment of Conrad Murrell was he had the intellect of an Arthur Pink, but he embodied such Christ-likeness. Very humble, very meek man. But well, let me close with this remark that came from his lips. No other direct commandment of our Lord is more ignored and avoided than the one found in Luke 17, verse 3, and Matthew 18, verse 15, the text we looked at tonight. He said, Nothing has gained me more alienation and hostility from some brothers and endeared me more to others than my poor attempts to obey it. In other words, going and confronting and seeking to restore. Now listen to what he says. More than one well-intentioned brother warned me that my pursuit of its injunction was losing me friends and making me most unpopular. He says, how can such a thing be? We can well understand the world's aversion to principles of Christian conduct, but should we not expect Christians, especially ministers of the gospel, to love the truth and put it into practice? This is profound. Listen. He said, personally, I value no one's friendship and fellowship so highly as those who have been kind and courageous enough to rebuke me in my error." Can you take reproof? If somebody cared enough to confront you and appeal to you in love, could you take it? Somebody said years ago that spiritual maturity is measured by being able to receive a reproof from somebody that you consider less spiritual than yourself. Can you take reproof? Better still, Can you initiate reproof? But ask God to give you love, to make you an epistle of love when you do it. Dare not compromise truth for love, but don't compromise love for truth either. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen to me before I continue to pray. Listen, this is going to be the next test for your church. I know God, I'm I'm no prophet, but I know the ways of providence. This assignment was given to me by your elders. And you know what? The context right now in your church is there's harmony. Harmony. There's a great measure of unity. But this is going to be the next test. You watch what I'm saying. It's going to come. So, Father, I pray, help the church. And, Lord, I pray that when things surface that need to be attended to individually and collectively as a congregation that they might put on display gospel care and gospel love and reconcile their differences. And may all the fruit of restoration, the love, the concern, the kindness, may all that that comes as a result down to the honor and praise of the Lord of the Church. In Jesus' name,
1: Amen. If you guys will stand with me.